On today's episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, your source for the latest information about the art, science, and business of coaching. You probably already know the importance of strength training for your endurance athletes, but do you ever find yourself stuck in a rut prescribing the same old workouts? Maybe it's time to change up your routine. Hey guys, Dave Schell here, and on this week's episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, I sat down with strength and conditioning coach extraordinaire Jess Elliott. I met Jess back in 2017 at the Endurance Coaching Summit, where she was talking about strength and conditioning, and at that time, she mentioned that it had come to her attention that athletes, or especially endurance athletes, could really benefit more from strength and conditioning. So I was excited to get her on the podcast and really dig into what is it we're doing wrong and how can we change it in the future to better benefit our athletes? I know my big takeaways from this were working on that posterior chain and getting rid of that high rep, low weight stuff and lifting heavier weights. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'm your host, Dave Shell, and today I am joined by Jess Elliott, strength and conditioning coach extraordinaire and owner of Tag Performance. Jess, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. First off, tell us a little bit more about yourself in your own words. Sure. So I kind of say I'm a strength and conditioning coach by trade. Uh, that's where I've spent a lot of my time. But really, my professional career has kind of gone on a lot of different tangents. And so not only have I worked in strength and conditioning at the high school level, um, collegiate level, professional level, um, but in addition to that, you know, I've worked in emergency medicine. I've spent a lot of time working on the sports medicine side of things. And so really, I've just kind of amassed a lot of different skills. And so it's kind of what encouraged me to launch my own company earlier in 2018, I believe in March of 2018. So that's Tag Performance. Uh, it stands for the Athlete Guild. And so yeah, I just I really wanted to find a way to serve a lot of the communities of athletes I've had the pleasure of working with over the last couple of years, and also capitalize on a lot of the skills I've collected over the years. So Hopefully this is step one to sharing some of that knowledge with all of you. Great. And we definitely appreciate it. <laughs> um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is that you were one of the presenters at last year's Endurance Coaching Summit yes. at Boulder um, 2017, when I say last year. And in conversations with you, you had mentioned that you learned in interactions with coaches how much endurance athletes could benefit from strength and conditioning. Yes. And so could you just tell me a little bit more about that? What were some of the things you were hearing from coaches or some of the things you saw that kind of led you down this path? Sure. So I think the first time that that thought occurred to me was actually um, while I was presenting at the 2017 ECS because there was just so much interest. And I believe that was actually the first year that they offered a strength breakout session. And so, you know, when you're standing up there at the podium kind of getting ready to present and you're seeing all of these people kind of trickle in, you can't help but overhear some of their conversations. And so many of them were like, oh, this is so awesome. Like we've been wanting something like this for so long. And then what was great was, you know, over the course of the two days, you know, I think I did maybe six different presentations for, um, for the strength breakout. And so I started kind of going a little bit off my plan script because I wanted to provide the people with some more specific information that kind of answered a lot of the questions that they had because they did, they had a lot of questions. And it's just one of the things I found in talking to a lot of people is that 
one, there aren't a lot of people that are on formal strength and conditioning programs. You know, you have your endurance athletes who have their running coaches, their cycling coaches, their swim coaches, um, you know, and they're on very specific programs for all potentially three of those sports, but then they don't have a strength and conditioning component. Um, so it was kind of just this light bulb moment for me that not a lot of people really understood the benefits of formal strength and conditioning and then also how to actually schedule that in addition to all of the other training workouts that you have throughout the course of a week let alone the course of a year so it's why do I need this why is it important you know can't I just spend time performing my sport and training within my sport to get better you know you think oh if I want to get better at cycling if I want to get faster I should spend more time on the bike and that is true to an extent, but there are a lot of things that strength and conditioning can do that you can only get in the weight room. So there was kind of that realization that, oh, wait, people don't really understand the need, and they also don't really understand how to fit it in to what they're already doing. And then in addition to that, the people who were incorporating strength and conditioning, I found that they were very outdated practices. And so you get a lot of the low weight, high repetition kind of style workouts. Um, and in addition to that, I noticed that they were almost overly sports specific. And so lots of unilateral movements, you know, lots of lunges, <laughs> things of that nature. There wasn't much variation to the workouts. You know, they would be on kind of the same exercise program and they would do the same lift for two to three months for their entire build essentially without changing it up uh, whether it's the movements or really the amount of weights that they're using or the set and rep schemes so it was just very stale programming that needed a lot more um, variation and that could have done with kind of a makeover and just more up-to-date methods that are being used in more traditional team sport settings. And then I think the other thing was just the amount of chronic injury patterns that I kept seeing during my time at C Sports Medicine Performance Center because, you know, I'd have people with the same sorts of imbalances, you know, whether they're sitting on, on a bike for a long time um, and their hips and their pelvis kind of gets out of alignment and they can't figure out what's going on. And so they end up having multiple bike fits done to try to reposition their saddle and it's still causing a lot of pain discomfort or runners who are having, you know, hip, knee, ankle problems and they're missing out months, you know, they're having to cancel races because they're just in so much pain and they're very similar injury patterns that you see across, you know, runners that you see across cyclists, across triathletes. And so just the fact that people hadn't found that way to really um, incorporate corrective exercises into their training program. So I just saw all of these different needs. Um, and the community was so wonderful. They were so receptive. They're so knowledgeable. And they just, they want this information. So um, kind of all of that together just made me want to share as much as possible with this community. I think a lot of times what I see with athletes, especially with age group athletes, is they're limited on the amount of time they have available to train. Yeah. And so it may not be um, immediately obvious how strength training or strength and mobility can help them be faster with cycling or swimming or running. And so what would you tell a coach who is kind of struggling with that? If, if an athlete has six hours to train and wants to get faster, how do you tell that athlete this is going to help you get faster and what are some things that a coach could do to start to integrate that and start that athlete down that path? Sure. Well, I think the initial conversation for me always goes back to information. Um, you know, I've actually had 
coaches come to me, athletes come to me saying, well, wait a minute, my one rep max on squat hasn't changed yet. My vertical jump has increased by two inches. How did that happen? And so you can actually break out pen and paper or calculator or a combination of all of those and break it down using physics and kind of say, well, this is actually what's happening. This is why your power is increasing by taking all of these variables and incorporating them into the equation. Then you can actually show why the body's changing, how the body's responding to the stimulus. And so I think it kind of depends. You know, you talked about age group athletes. So my kind of initial question would be, what sort of age ranges are you thinking about? Because that also will kind of um, provide a unique twist on things. Are you thinking younger athletes, older athletes, a combination of the two? I I would say um, a lot of the times what we see is that it might be more of a middle-aged athlete. So let's say 40 to 50 doing an Ironman. Sure. Um, And they're trying to fit in all their riding and all their running and all their swimming. Mm -hmm. How do you incorporate strength into that? And what would be appropriate for that athlete? Sure. That's where it gets a little bit tricky because, you know, a lot of the people you hear something like you hear a podcast and you're like, oh, that sounds really great. Or you read this article and you're like, oh, I really want to try this. But the problem is, um, you know, maybe they've been a triathlete for, you know, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years. But how much time have they spent in the weight room? So their sport age versus their biological age, versus their training age, which is what we kind of call the amount of the experience that they have within the weight room, their familiarity. And so if they have a very low training age, you know, it's very difficult to kind of start something all of a sudden. And then you take a look at the periodized plan over the course of the entire year, or if it's an Olympic athlete, you know, kind of the quadrennial plan. And so if they're in the middle of their competitive season, it's very, very challenging to say, okay, let's start you on this new strength and conditioning program. Because if their body hasn't moved in a lot of these ways before, it's going to cause soreness, it's going to cause fatigue, it's going to set them back and kind of dig them into the hole. And that's not really the appropriate time to do it. So really, for coaches, it's one of those things that it's a decision that needs to be Uh, very strategically thought out. It can't be something that's decided on a whim. And so it really needs to be a conversation that athletes and coaches have early on so that they can plan to incorporate it into their um, annual training program in advance, potentially up to a year in advance, because ideally you really want to try to catch it maybe right after their competitive season ends, start on the active recovery, which you know, my focus in active recovery is cross-training the body, resting, of course, but also getting the body to move in different ways, in ways that it hasn't, to kind of keep the body moving well and to challenge the body in new ways, to make sure that we're not just ingraining the same movement patterns over and over again. So for athletes that have a very young training age, um, which once again is different than their biological age or their sport age, so maybe they've only spent you know, a year or maybe a couple of months in the weight room here and there, just kind of dabbling in it, nothing formal. Uh, Maybe they're more machine-based in some of their workouts, or maybe it's mostly body weight stuff, you know, lunges, stability ball leg curls, body weight squats, resistance band work, you know, things like that. I would say it's almost better for them to wait until their off-season and active recovery to start something very formal. If it's somebody who's a more experienced athlete, maybe they've been doing a little bit of uh, resistance training, at least during their building phase. That's something where you might be able to incorporate things pretty strategically um, 
even maybe in their competitive season, you just really need to be mindful of kind of the fitness and fatigue balance. You know, am I digging them too far into the hole? Because this is going to be a new stimulus. It's going to stress their body in new ways. Can I afford to um, allow their performance to decline in the short term so that they can rest, recover, and adapt to be stronger, faster, more powerful, et cetera. One thing I've noticed in my coaching, um, and I'll admit that I'm terrible in um, programming strength training. One, I don't feel that I'm um, qualified to do it. But when I do, um, I maybe don't mix it up a lot or I fall back on what I'm comfortable with. But I I always tend to start with body weight strength Mm -hmm. training stuff. And I find that a lot of people, they want to move on fast, like more quickly. You know, sure. they don't think this is going to be challenging. But what I find is that it makes them sore, right? Just, just doing some air squats or a wall sit or something like that makes them very sore. And kind of my thinking is if this is making you sore, you're not prepared to move on to doing more of that resistance training. Would you, is that right thinking or should I start them with more resistance and weight loaded exercises? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, You know, it's kind of difficult to say, you know, it really is up to the coach's discretion, you know, because you really need to get an eye on how your athlete is moving. Um, You know, just looking at a movement that seems basic, like the squat, um, what's their position look like in the squat? Are they pretty balanced? You know, when I look at an athlete perform a movement, I look, you know, from the front, I look from the sides, and then I also take a posterior view standing behind them. And so I'm looking for any weight shifting, you know, do they have maybe a more dominant side? Um, You can see that a lot with cyclists. They tend to have more of their power side, so to say. And you can see that side will take over in a bilateral movement like the squat and so I'm looking for I'm looking for technique I'm looking for appropriate form and so for me that's really the criteria that's the greener red light so to say Um, if things are looking good I'm okay with progressing them on to different weights and of course it depends on their age as well Uh, for younger athletes um I tend to start more with dumbbell progressions. So I like goblet squats as an initial progression. I like box squats because it really teaches that sitting back in a squat position because most people, when they squat, they kind of almost do this elevator thing where they go straight down as opposed to down and back. And so what I'm really looking for is more of a vertical shin angle. And there's a lot of different ways to squat. A front squat position is going to be very different from a back squatting position. A high bar back squatting position is going to be very different from a low bar back squatting position. And then there's foot position as well to consider. And so it kind of depends on, well, how is the athlete set up anatomically? You know, sometimes you get athletes with shorter torsos, longer femurs. And so a high bar back squat or even any sort of back squat can be very awkward for them. So it might be better to start them on a trap bar deadlift or maybe a front loaded goblet squat because it's going to help counterbalance their weight because their torso is a little bit shorter compared to their femoral shaft length. And so really it's, it's about good technique. It's about movement mastery to me. So as a strength coach, I describe myself as a movement based coach where that's really what I'm looking for. It's quality of movement. Um, And once they kind of hit all of my, you know, they check all the boxes as far as what I'm looking for within one movement, then I can progress and start to add more weight. Then I can start to add in more variations, make things more difficult, et cetera. So I would say 
really the matter of weight is um, kind of about their own goals. You know, what are they training for? Is it appropriate to do a strength block? Uh, For someone who's just starting to incorporate weight training into their program, you probably don't want to start with maximal weights. Um, Does that mean you need to do, you know, two to three sets of 15 to 20 repetitions? No, not necessarily. You can still get into the, you know, one to five rep range. You're just not going to start with, you know, one to five rep weights, so to say. So kind of that 85 to 100% 1RM range. So you can dial it back a little bit. Um, And as far as soreness, to me, really all that is is pushing the body past its limits to some extent as far as, you know, are you causing microtrauma to the muscle fibers and to the cells? And so I had some firefighters that I used to work with who it's almost like they thought that, you know, the more likely they were to throw up after a workout, the better the workout quality must have been, where really it's, well, what was the workout accomplishing? What was the goal of the workout? So I don't necessarily see soreness as the best gauge. It definitely means that some work was performed that was more than they're obviously accustomed to, more than their bodies acclimated to at that time. Was it the appropriate type of work, the most beneficial type of work? Was it overloading their body in the right way? that's where it starts to get a little bit tricky. So I would say more so the soreness, while it's an indicator that work was performed, we still need to discuss the quality of work and say, well, what sort of work was performed? What sort of physiological changes did we just elicit on the body by you know, providing this X stimulus? Listening to you, it sound, it's a very hands-on when you're working <laughs> with an be. athlete. You're looking at them, you're seeing um, how they're moving through those patterns, things like that. A lot of the coaches listening might be coaching athletes remotely, and so that's going to present different challenges. Do you have any tips um, <laughs> in that regard? One, is a, is a coach with no background in strength and conditioning, are they qualified to coach an athlete through that? And two, if they are, any tips for doing it remotely? Sure. Oh, man. The remote coaching is something that I, ever since launching my business, um, I've <laughs> received experience with the remote coaching. And I have to say, as someone who's very reliant on, you know, visualization um, and working hands-on and looking at an athlete's body day in, day out, you know, at least a couple times a week, it's incredibly challenging to do it remotely. So hats off to all of the remote coaches out there because it, it absolutely is a very real challenge. And especially in strength and conditioning where so much is really dependent on visual cues. Um, And also just kind of tactile awareness, working with the athletes, you know, to actually physically cue an athlete by, you know, putting a hand on the right muscle that should be activating, you know, you don't have that. So you really have to get a little bit creative. Um, On that end, some of the things that I started doing was I actually recorded my own video library of, I started with, I want to say maybe like 150 videos of just kind of some of the core exercises that I use in my programming because what I was having to do was I was having to YouTube a lot of these videos and you'd usually find something that's maybe like 80% of what you're looking for. There's some terrible ones out there. Exactly. And so you're like, okay, here's a link to this video, but don't do what this guy's doing. You know, like don't do this and don't do that, but do this part. And so, you know, I found that it was much easier to just create my own library of videos where the movements were performed exactly the way that 
I would want them to be performed as a coach because it was fine-tuned to my programming, my methodology, my philosophies, and what specifically I'm trying to train within my athletes. Um, So that was something that was very helpful because then I can just send those along with my programs out to athletes. And really, you know, bless my athletes because they just have been um, taking like iPhone videos during their lifts. And so pretty much any time that I change a movement for them, if I'm, you know, progressing to a different style squat, if we're incorporating plyometrics, if it's a new movement, if it's a challenging movement, um, I'll have them actually record it and send the video to me. And then from there, I'll give them feedback and say, okay, I want you to sit back a little bit more, or, you know, you're cheating the depth a little bit on your squat. I need you to actually get the hip crease below the level of the knees. So I need you to get a little bit lower. And then I can actually make more recommendations as far as, you know, let's actually drop you down in weight for the next week. And so it's just a lot of communication. It's a lot more back and forth um, just to make sure that you're really – I guess, customizing things to the athlete's needs on a day-to-day basis and on a weekly basis as well. So it's very challenging for sure. Yeah. So is a coach, let's say there's tons of information out there. There is. I I can Google and come up with all these different programs or the five (laughs) exercises that every cyclist should do. Is a coach, they've got some knowledge of physiology and um, endurance training, things like that. Like, are they qualified to give at least some level of instruction with strength and conditioning, or do you think they'd be better off outsourcing that to somebody like yourself? Sure. Um, you know, I'm honestly going to take a little bit of a, a, a diplomatic approach because honestly, you can answer it both ways because the reality of being a strength and conditioning coach is that, you know, my undergraduate degree, it's technically in human performance and sport with an emphasis in exercise science. My master's degree is in biomechanics and sports coaching. And that's great. But honestly, it's just it's paying for initials behind your name. It's, um, you know, the reality and I'm not sure how many other professions maybe feel this way, but you know, my first internship was working with um, Lauren Landau. He was the director of sports performance at Stedman Hawkins Clinic um, in Greenwood Village at that time. This was in 2011. And, you know, I had always gotten pretty much straight A's in my program and I was feeling really good. I was kind of like the Hermione Granger of exercise science where I, I felt like I had a lot of book knowledge. I had been working out a lot. I was always very athletic growing up. But what he impressed upon me was there's a very, very big difference between exercise science and sports science. And it completely blew my mind. It's actually what encouraged me to go back to get my master's degree because I just felt completely overwhelmed. I felt like, well, I almost feel like I know nothing. Like here I am going into, you know, your senior year of a degree program. And so of course you think, you know, everything at that point, and then you get out into the real world and then, you know, reality, you know, kind of slaps you in the face and you realize just how little you actually do know. And honestly, after now working in the field for maybe about, oh, eight years at this point, what I found is that the best strength and conditioning coaches, it's not so much about the degrees. It's not about the formal education. The best strength coaches out there are continually learning. You know, they, they're sponges. They never really feel like they've arrived because they appreciate how much more information is out there. So if you look at their offices, their bookshelf is a complete library. And it's they're not textbooks. You know, it's not books that were required reading for their degree program. It's books that uh, have been created by some of the top names in our industry that they've 
gone out personally to research. And so most most strength and conditioning coaches, you know, it's a practice of self-study. It's something where you're continually striving to learn what's out there. You know, you go to certification courses now and again to pick up some new tools and yes, to get more initials behind your name because, you know, employers like those. Um, but you're, you're learning from mentors, you're networking with other people from conferences, you're going to observe other coaches um, at their colleges or at their weight rooms to see how they do things. You're writing emails and collaborating and saying, hey, so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about trying this method, you know, you implement this a lot, what's your experience been? And so it's, it's something that really is a self-study, in a sense, to really be great at it. It's something that um, is very self-motivated, self-driven. So absolutely, can anybody, regardless of their background, you know, become incredibly knowledgeable in the field of strength and conditioning or biomechanics or physiology? Absolutely. And so that's kind of the, the one side of things. But then on the other side, uh, that same mentor um, also kind of... <laughs> scared me a little bit because uh, one of the first things he told us interns was as a sports performance coach, you're manipulating and altering the body at the cellular level. And that's something which you absolutely need to take seriously. And so you need to have a scientific reason for everything that you're doing. And so another kind of thing that he instilled in us is because we're manipulating the body at such um such an invasive level, for lack of a better term, it was we need to understand what volumes, what intensities, what physiological stresses we're asking of our athletes. So really, when you write a workout for an athlete, you need to understand exactly how much volume and how much stress that's going to be placing on the athlete's body at that point in their competitive season. And so anybody who's looking to um, you know, start doing some programming, I would say, Always err on the conservative side, but try things out on yourself first. You know, don't use your athletes really as guinea pigs, um, which inevitably we all do, right? But really test things out on your, on yourself first. Really understand a workout, you know, just because you might be able to do it, that doesn't necessarily mean that your athletes might be able to do it. And so you need to scale things appropriately. So those are kind of the two sides. So on one hand, yes, absolutely. Anybody who's passionate, who's willing to seek out this information, they can find it. There's a lot of great information out there, and I absolutely encourage and support people to do that. But also, on the other hand, keep in mind that, you know, your athletes' bodies, that's that's their resource. You know, that's something that needs to be taken seriously. It's not just about, you know, oh, I'm going to do an exercise for my back today, or I'm going to train the core. Um, and here are three exercises that do that. It really is about manipulating an athlete's body at the molecular and cellular level. And so you just need to have that appreciation and that sense of responsibility to accompany that if you're going to take that on yourself. Going back to the books um, that you mentioned, <laughs> sure. do, do you have any do, that you would recommend? Is there two or three books that would oh. be good resources for somebody wanting to learn more about proper strength and conditioning? Oh, goodness. There are a lot. Um, honestly, this one's this one's a little bit challenging, but Super Training by Mel Siff is kind of one of the staple textbooks. Um, one of the more recent ones that I started reading was uh, Triphasic Training. It was uh, by Cal Dietz. And so it was something that, you know, I kind of had my own <laughs> theories and thoughts on, you know, triphasic training because essentially all movements are triphasic. And so, um, you know, 
I finally broke down. I was like, you know, I keep hearing this a lot. I really love Caldeets. I love his approach. I actually want to try this. And so I actually started incorporating that. So I read the book, uh, loved a lot of the points it made, had a few, you know, thoughts on some of some of the points. There are some that I was a little bit more skeptical of. Um, but you also have to consider that, you know, Cal Dietz is a coach. He works with a very specific set of athletes. And so that's one of the other things that you have to keep in mind is who wrote this book and what sort of population are they serving? What are their goals? Because their goals could be completely different than mine. The amount of contact or training hours that they can log with their athletes could be completely different than mine. So some of these methods might not be the best fit for what I'm doing. Um, I also really liked um, Joe Ken, the tier system. That was something that I read a few years back uh, when I was working in college strength and conditioning. I found that the tier system was very, very beneficial in the collegiate environment. Um, and I actually used a modified version with of that with all of my teams. Obviously, their lifts look different. But what's neat about that is that, you know, when you read traditional textbooks, like if you read NSCA's textbook on like strength and conditioning. Um, I forget what edition they're at right now, maybe the sixth, I want to say. Um, it gives some very basic textbook concepts. I think that's where we get the endurance athletes should do, you know, uh, low weights and high repetitions because that trains muscular endurance. And so you get a lot of these textbook concepts, but when you start branching out and you're actually reading these specific methodology books on like triphasic training or West Side Barbell or uh, Charles Poliquin or the tier system or the cube method, you know, you're actually getting very specific methods that are working for certain coaches. And so it, it completely throws the initial textbook information that you learned out the window. And so that's what I mean when I say, you know, school is great and formal education is great. I would never say otherwise, but it's only going to carry you so far. And then you really want to almost take over and learn from other professionals within the industry. And so you just mentioned um, certain coaches getting specific results with a subset of athletes. Yes. <laughs> and so in your experience, because you have had the opportunity to work with all sorts of athletes, how does an endurance athlete differ from a more traditional team sport type athlete in their strength tra training needs? Sure. What's interesting is they don't differ as much as you might think, um, because ultimately sports, it kind of all boils down to the same thing. Um, one of my one of the coaches that I worked with at CU Boulder when I was doing like my graduate internship there, um, he was like, Jess, he's like, honestly, it's really simple. All strength and conditioning comes down to is more force, less time. That's the nature of the job. And so and I thought about it and I'm like, is it really that simple? And he was one of the assistant coaches, you know, who worked with football. I think right now, I think he was last at um, Villanova University out east. Um, but I was kind of like, it, it, it struck me and it really made me pause. And I'm like, you know, for most athletes, that really is what it comes down to, generating more force in less time. And endurance athletes, it's no different. You know, if you want to get to the finish line faster, you need to produce more force in less time. Um and so the differences that I see is really more on the corrective side of things. You know, all athletes are going to have imbalances and most athletes are going to be quad dominant as just as human beings, the way we're anatomically set up, the quads have mechanical advantage because of the patella and how it affects the patellar tendon. So we actually are always going to have more of a mechanical advantage on the front side versus the posterior side. So posterior chain development is huge for 
all athletes. Um, but really with endurance athletes, to me, the biggest thing that sets them apart is the amount of volume that they place on their bodies within their sport, within their training, because it's hours. It's hours on a bike. It's hours on the road. It's hours in a pool and it's miles. You know, you're not just doing, you know, 10 yard, 15, 20 yard sprints where you can do that, you know, five to 10 times for your uh, speed work for the day. You know, you're not really doing acceleration work or top end speed work. You're training for races that can last hours. Um, and then you're going to do multiple of those over the course of the year. And then you're going to change for the next season. So it's not, they don't have traditional seasons as we see it in team sports where you have, eh, you know, maybe a few months, it's like a competitive season. And then most of the year, you know, off to kind of start building again to get ready for the next competitive season, you know, with cyclists, you don't just have cyclists that do one thing, you know, they compete in a wide variety of races. And so it almost ends up being a year round sport. And each one of those types of races requires different physiological capabilities that you need to train for. And so, you know, anytime you're spending a lot of time in one position or doing one specific type of movement, it's going to pull the body out of balance. And so the dysfunctions, they tend to be more set within the bodies. Um, and so it's a lot harder to overcome. You know, I would see a lot of cyclists or runners, triathletes that would come to me at CU Sports Medicine Performance Center, and they're potentially training within their sport anywhere from 15 to 30 hours a week. And then I ask them what they're doing for mobility and for correctives. And they're like, oh, well, I do yoga once a week. And I'm like, okay, how many hours is that? They're like, oh, like an hour. And so I'm like, all right, so we have your body, you know, that's 30 hours worth of dysfunction, essentially, because sports do pull our bodies into dysfunctional patterns. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but the weight room is where we correct that. And so if you're not spending enough time to correct it, you're just digging yourself further and further in the hole. And kind of like we talked about uh, before the podcast started, it was endurance sports or lifetime sports, really. It's not like an NFL player who's going to get to play for maybe hmm, two to 10 years, potentially two to 15 on the high end. You know, this is something that people are doing for decades of their life. And so we really need to take care of their bodies along the way. Now, you had mentioned um, when we first started, you said that you see a lot of kind of outdated methods being used when you were or when you were hearing from those coaches yeah you're hearing a lot of those outdated methods and so i'd say are there some common missteps that you see with coaches yes <laughs> i feel bad i feel like i'm gonna maybe step on some toes here it, it needs um, to happen just let it go just it's let okay it if anybody if anybody has questions please feel feel free to ask and i'm happy to <laughs> expand more i don't just want to start all these fires and then not put them out um but yeah one of the things that we talked about was kind of just the low low weight and high repetitions because if you're doing body weight all the time how are you going to generate more force you know it's it's the whole principle of overload and so you need to overload the body and generating high levels of force you need to lift heavier weights that's how you recruit the muscle fibers that you need you know if i'm going to um if I'm going to do a bodyweight squat, my body is only going to recruit enough motor units to complete that task. And so maybe I'm recruiting like 5% of the motor units that could be recruited for a given task. Now, if I put, you know, 90% of my one rep max on the bar, I might be recruiting like 
80% of the muscle units that I could, or the motor units that I could be for a given uh, movement. And so really that's the sort of stimulus that we need to get better. And so I think a lot of people there, they see in textbooks, you know, like the endurance range and they think, oh, I'm an endurance athlete and I log a lot of miles. And so I don't, my sport isn't doing things, you know, one to five times, my sport is doing things hundreds and thousands of times over so many miles. And so they think the more reps, the better. But it's such a low intensity that you're not quite overloading the the body in the correct way. So you can overload the body as far as intensity goes, which is percent of weight on the bar, uh, like percent of your one rep max, or you can overload the body with volume. So I can have somebody do 500 bodyweight squats and yeah they're going to be sore and it's going to overload their body or I could have them do three sets of five with you know 80 to 85 percent of their one rep max on the bar and that's going to overload their body as well but with the high repetitions volume is what is going to be more likely to get an athlete injured over time and you have to consider the fact that they're already getting so much volume in their sport that to then add more volume with training it's not necessarily moving the athlete in the right direction. So that's definitely one of the things that I see that's probably a common mistake. So so before we move on to the next mistake, <laughs> oh, great. just because you have you it sounds like mobility is such an important part of this. It is. And so I would think that with the body weight stuff, the mobility comes into play and shouldn't the athlete move well before they move into weighted exercises or is doing the weighted exercises helping with that mobility? Ooh, that's, that's, that's tricky because, you know, the, the PC answer in a sense is uh, technique, then force. That's what we're always taught, you know, learn the technique, then start to add on weight, which is absolutely true. You know, don't take a novice athlete and load 200 pounds on the bar and expect them to back squat it. But that being said, if you wait for everything to be perfect, you might never get to add on weight. Um, So, I mean, it it kind of depends. Uh, Really, you do need to have solid technique and there's appropriate progressions. You know, we talked a little bit about squatting kind of earlier on today. And I mentioned that I really love box squatting because it really teaches an athlete to sit those hips back and to reach back and get that nice vertical shin angle, which is going to activate more of the posterior chain. That's great to do body weight. You know, but if it's taking them six months of doing bodyweight box squats before their technique is great, at a certain point, you need to start progressing forward and let things kind of come. Now, does that mean I'm going to add a barbell the next day? Not at all. But I can start to progress to light dumbbells and do maybe a front-loaded goblet squat. And so I think that it's just that whole idea of progressive overload. And so you want to make sure that you're strategically overloading and also deloading the body at certain periods of time to making to make sure that not only are they learning technique but you're actually working towards your goals as well right now and and we will will move on i promise (laughs) but i you just made me think of something and this is i i I was coaching an athlete and she was going and seeing a pt and it seems to me that the answer is always the glute medius isn't firing And that and, is one of our favorites. And the answer is always like one-legged squats or something. And again, in my mind, I am over. I'm, I'm always overly cautious. Or maybe there is something else to that too. But but they had um, prescribed one-legged squats. And for me, I feel like huh. you should be able to do a, like a bilateral squat properly right? before you move on to the one-legged. You because, would think, you know, and like watching her do it and watching the knee kind of collapse in and all these things, and it just drives me nuts. So. Yeah. So is there, again, going back to progressions, and 
I guess for me to just like I was a certified at one point and so that's always part of my background where it's like I'm always thinking about like closed chain and like starting like closed chain and then getting into the dumbbells and like these other open chain movements and things like that with those one-legged squats because I do feel like there's so much out there and like people like especially with like CrossFit and now now I'm gonna get hung out to try oh Um, man (laughs) but like with CrossFit it's like so much of it is about the novelty and just like doing the hardest thing you can as many times as you can and things like that and and so would you say that for those one-legged squats and stuff like that that they have should have a good foundation before they move on to challenging their body in those ways sure I mean, single single leg squats are hard. (laughs) Right. Unweighted single weight squats are That's the thing. I mean, um, most athletes, I mean, to me, I have, uh, I'm going to take a term that really has been kind of overused and butchered to the point where it almost doesn't mean anything. So I am a huge fan of functional training in a sense, um, which I mean, there's like 50,000 meanings behind functional training at this point, right? Um, But I mean, I have certain expectations of any athlete, I don't care who you are, you should be able to pull your own body weight. You should be able to push your own body weight. You should be able um, to perform certain unilateral movements. You should have coordination. You should have balance. And so is a single leg squat potentially something great that's functional for athletes to try to strive for? Sure. Now, that being said, a lot of people can't do a single leg squat. Me, for example, on my right side, I can do a single leg pistol squat on my right, but I can't do it on my left side because of how my patella tracks. Um, I've actually seen some specialists. They don't know what exactly is going on. They think there could be something rough on the underside of the patella that's not a lot, that's causing it to catch. Um, but I can't really do that. So I'd have to do it kind of assisted, not so much on the upward phase, but lowering down because it just it causes a lot of knee pain. So it's one of those things where not a lot of people can do single leg squats. So if you're expecting them to do that before they even do bilateral movements, that's a little bit crazy. And as far as the glute medius, honestly, for glute meat activation, the best sort of work you can be doing, and I'm probably going to light up some PTs out there, um, is really resistance band work. And you know, a lot of people do the, oh, I'm going to do these side steps. I'm going to do them standing. I'm going to do them squatting. But there's so much more work you can actually do with a mini band. Um, so I actually do a lot of accessory work with my athletes doing mini band work. And it's to provide a lot of that stabilization to activate not just the glute med, the hip stabilizers, um, kind of the peroneals of the lower leg that help with stabilization, the foot, having them perform them barefoot, having them stand on one leg and do kind of like um, a little, uh, like an IYT type movement uh, with the foot, kind of a forward, sideways, backwards movement with the other leg on the mini band. So things like this, I mean, are really what's going to help activate those stabilizer muscles, as opposed to saying, oh, let's just have you single leg squat. To me, that's kind of putting the what do they say? Putting the, the cart before the horse. That's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. I can't believe you read my mind. Yeah. And, and that's so again, just to give you a little bit of an idea, like that's when I was talking about people being sore earlier, I wasn't thinking so much that like, oh, they're sore. They're getting the overload. It's the fact that if you can't do this, right? that's an issue. Like if you can't do 10 push-ups, mm-hmm. three sets of 10 push-ups, let's get that right before we start adding weight. And same Absolutely. thing with like side lying leg lifts. It's like mm-hmm. if your foot's shaking right. on rep 11 of 12, you know, <laughs> like 
that's Absolutely. an issue. So before you get to a single leg squat, let's yes. let's get you to be where that's not an issue. And Absolutely. then like and then do it with a shoe on to add a little bit of weight. Right. You know? So is that appropriate thinking or Yeah, is it- absolutely. So I mean, you know, progression is really it's meeting the athlete where they're at. And if they're at the point where even one set of bodyweight squats is challenging and difficult for them, Start with that. You know, you don't need to move on to added weight. Keep things the same and then add on volume, add on repetitions. And so that's kind of how I like to look at things is um, I will add on volume first and then I'll kind of scale back the volume and then start working on intensity with different movements, especially with body weight movements. You know, I might have them start with two sets of 10 on a bodyweight squat, you know, using a chair just to teach that sitting back movement for like a box squat. And then once two by 10 feels good, let's go three by 10. When that feels good, let's try three by 15. And then hopefully, you know, at least enough weeks have passed where they have enough repetitions uh, logged where they have some muscle memory that started to kick in. And then I can take away you know, the chair and add in a small dumbbell and go back to maybe three sets of 10. And then you can start progressing and adding on more weight from there. So absolutely, from a progression standpoint, you're absolutely right. You really have to meet athletes where they're at. And some athletes, it could be Olympic lifting, and they're great at it. And they need something that's more challenging. For other athletes, just learning proper technique, learning how to bend, learning how to hinge the body. Oh my goodness. So many people just need to learn how to hinge and that can take a good amount of time. And so sometimes you just need to start where they're at and see that progression through and progress them when they're ready, because you absolutely don't want to start adding in too much force before that technique is solid and ingrained into the body. All right. So now let's move into the next common mistake you see. Oh goodness. (laughs) I have to get my list. Um, okay. So this one's kind of interesting and this is something I actually see across all sports, but it's really about uh, the mistake that I see is coaches who train to an athlete's strengths as opposed to training to their weaknesses, which will probably make a lot of athletes out there really unhappy because it means then changing their workout program from all of the things that they've probably been doing like lunges and step-ups to things that they haven't maybe been doing that they don't like things like Romanian deadlifts, just deadlifts in general on a straight bar, um, low bar back squatting, um, you know, upper body work, pull-ups, TRX inverted rows, push-ups. Um, you know, most endurance athletes are actually good about doing, um, a variety of body weight exercises, but posterior chain work, that's something that I see lacking. So, um, you know, Don't spend a lot of time training what you're already good at, training what your sport already makes you strong at. You know, most of these athletes, they have really, really strong quads. I don't need to train their quads anymore. I just don't. But I do need to train their hamstrings. And so don't train what they're good at. Train what they're really bad at. And it's going to make a lot of unhappy athletes because you're like, oh, I hate front squats because they're so hard. But yeah, it's it's meant to be hard. And as you do them, they'll become less hard. Um, but I think that's a lot of what I see, not just um, with endurance athletes, but even with coaches too. When we write our own programs, we tend to avoid putting in the things that we probably need, but we know we don't like doing. And so it's just, it's it's understanding, you know, to get better, you need to get better at the things that you're bad at, not the things that you're already good at. Yeah. I always uh, tell athletes if they leave comments about how much they hated it or something, it's like, well, sounds like you probably need to do it more than. Exactly. (laughs) You're like, so I'm I'm hearing you say that we need to do more of that. Exactly. (laughs) 
Um, let's see. So kind of moving down my list, um, let's see. One of the other things would just be that lack of stretching, muscle activation work, mobility work. Um, you know, most athletes, we we like being active. And so I think it's really difficult to take time out of your day to do stretching for the most part. I mean, even just doing a proper active dynamic warm-up, that's the time when I do a lot of activation work and corrective exercises with my athletes. So it actually is a very important thing. But how many people do you know that just get outside and get on their bike or put on their shoes and go for a run? They don't necessarily do a very thorough and methodical active dynamic warm-up that moves the body in all three planes um, and works on coordination skills and that brings the body back to balance. Um, not a lot of people take time to do that. And kind of like what we said, you know, you could spend anywhere from 15 to 30 hours a week training within your sport. How much time a week are you spending bringing your body back to balance? And so really yoga once a week is wonderful and it's absolutely better than nothing. But is that going to counterbalance the 30 hours that you're spending pulling your body out of balance? So I'd say that's kind of a, an opportunity um, that we can pretty easily take advantage of, even if it just means stretching at night right before you go to bed or stretching for a few minutes first thing in the morning. Your bodies will feel better. Your performance will feel better. Uh, foam rolling at least once a day, um, just small changes and incorporating that in a much more methodical way. And any more um, mistakes that you <laughs> you're, see? Like, you're just, looking at my list. Yeah, I can and, see. yeah are there any more? <laughs> um. Let's see. So one thing that I've noticed is, one, there's still a lot of endurance athletes that don't weight train at all. Um, so maybe this podcast will encourage some to consider it. Um, but the ones who do, it's a very interesting trend where they'll incorporate resistance training like during their off season and their build, and then their competition season will start and they'll stop weightlifting. And, you know, you tell me, how how long is your competitive season? Yeah, probably like six weeks, maybe. Okay. And so what people fail to consider is that there's such a thing as residual training effects. So please, everybody Google that like right now. Um, so when you're training, um, whether it's aerobic endurance or maximal strength or strength speed or speed strength or power, all of these things, all of these variables that we're trying to improve upon in the weight room there's residual training effects that take place after the weight room. And so speed, for example, um, is going to last maybe five to seven days at best. So once you stop training that, after five to seven days, you've lost the residual training effects from all of the work you've put in. Put in, And so all of these variables, they build on one another, and they all have different timelines for kind of how long the effects stay within the body, so to say, before you start to lose the adaptations. And so what's so funny to me is so many athletes are like, oh, it's my competition season. I don't want to be sore. I need to focus on racing. So they spend, you know, all of these months building and developing adaptations within their body. And right at the start of their competitive season, they completely stop. And then, so let's say six weeks, maybe the biggest race is kind of towards the end of that. That's five weeks later. Right. And so by the end of that time, all of the residual training effects would have disappeared at that point. And so you're actually going into your most important race with none of the adaptations that you've spent so many months working on. And so it's really something that you actually do need to strategically plan to touch on some of these things. Maybe you don't do a full six-week strength block in the middle of your competitive season, but even just one workout 
with a little bit of strength component to it is enough to re-stimulate those residual training effects and get them to carry on for another, you know, 21 to 30 days, give or take. And so it's one of those things where you really need to understand kind of how these effects play out within the body because otherwise, you know, you're going into your peak completely unprepared. And so it's that's probably one of the most interesting things to me. So for me, the biggest change that I would love to see, and I know this won't happen overnight, but it's uh, endurance athletes training throughout their competitive season. And I know it's really difficult, especially with triathletes, because you're essentially training for three sports in one. But, oh my goodness, you are going to feel so much better. It's going to feel like so much less of a grind during that you know, competitive season. And so it's tricky to figure out the timing, but so worth it. Before I let you go, we're about out of time. Um, Definitely got some good takeaways as far as the mistakes. And it sounds like (laughs) the biggest ones, as you said, is just people not strength training at all. Yeah, that's that's Um, surprising. Which I think is a pretty big one. And so for those coaches that you want, if you do want to convince them to start to incorporate some strength training with their athletes, what are a few things that they could get started with just um, as the basics. Sure. Um, So I would say learn proper lifting techniques because with your athletes, who knows how long it might take. Um, You know, some of us are more coordinated than others. We have better kinesthetic awareness than other people. And so for some athletes, learning how to properly move in a squat pattern might take a week might take just one lifting session or it might take a month. Uh, so start start learning those proper techniques today. Start working on those proper movement patterns. There's not really a need to wait. The force, you can start to add that on later, but start with the technique. The next thing would be don't be afraid to lift heavy weights. A lot of people are really afraid that it's going to bulk them up, that it's going to detract from their performance. And really, that's not the case at all. If you stay out of kind of the hypertrophy range, which is going to be like 6 to 12-ish repetitions, you know, stay 5 and under, that's going to keep you in the strength zone. Even if you're not lifting like a 5 rep max weight, stay within that range, and then you're not going to be adding on the volume that's going to bulk you up because Uh, The strength to mass ratio is definitely a very real thing for endurance athletes, and it's very easily avoidable. But lift heavy and don't be afraid of it. Uh, The next thing would be just move in all three planes. Think outside the sagittal plane. There's more than just moving forward and backward in life. And so really, uh, Gray Cook says it very well. He says, move well, move often. And, you know, to kind of coin a term from our childhood is, you know, it's a use it or lose it mentality. And so you know, we, we don't move like we did when we're kids. You know, when you're a kid, you're running around chasing each other, you're cutting in different directions, you're jumping out of trees, you're chasing one another, you're rolling all over the place. And so, I mean, you're all, your body is also very supple and young. It doesn't have all of this mileage and wear and tear on it. So things feel pretty good, but move well, move often, move in all three planes, move in a wide variety of directions, because if you only move forward and backward, and if you only train forward and backward, you're going to gain more, um, dysfunctions over time and it's just going to add more wear and tear so move well move often um the last two things would be train what you're bad at (laughs) i know it's not fun but usually if you don't like it like you said it's because you need more of it and then the last thing is really just um posterior chain development it's what we all need it's what we're all lacking so Um, train the back, open up the chest, especially for the cyclists out there. I promise it's going to feel so much better. Um, Your back isn't going to get as sore, but also um, 
train, learn how to hinge, you know, power comes from the glutes and the hamstrings and from explosive hip extension. And so try to shift back. Don't rely on the quads as much. They're already strong. Train what you're bad at. Okay. Train where you're not getting a lot of the volume, which is going to be more the posterior chain. So learn how to hinge, um, train the hamstrings, um, you know, train the glutes, barbell, glute bridges, kettlebell swings, um, stability ball leg curls. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do even without weights that'll help develop that posterior chain and that'll make you more explosive within your sport. Awesome. Those are great tips. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I'm sure everyone else will too. Before I let you go, um, we were talking a little bit about social media before we started recording. (laughs) So (laughs) is there a place for people to follow you either on Twitter or Instagram? And where Uh, would they find you? Actually, so... um, I recently created a Instagram account. I do have a Facebook page for Tag Performance LLC based in Boulder, Colorado. Um, so you can kind of look that up. Everything that I create in Instagram logs onto my Facebook page. It kind of syncs automatically. But on my Instagram account, it's Tag Performance Co. Um, just all spelled out in one word, tag for the Athlete Guild Performance CEO. And what that has is, one, a lot of great motivational quotes, but then there's a lot of content, a lot of videos. So remember how I told you I created my own video library? So that's actually where I put a lot of the exercise videos. And so within the comment section, I usually add in a whole explanation of the movement, why it's beneficial. Um, And I'm always open to requests or questions if people want to know like why is this movement beneficial why can't I do this movement instead what is this actually training how is this affecting the body please feel free to leave a comment uh, send a dm I'm always happy to answer questions because this is just great information and really my mission is just to share it with as many people in the community as possible that's awesome I think we are going to break your instagram account do it Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was amazing to come out here. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jess Elliott. Be sure to check her out at this year's Endurance Coaching Summit, September 18th through 20th in Boulder, Colorado. Jess will be teaching a small group workshop and showing you how you can apply what you just heard about to your own athletes. Hope to see you there.